timely break from Genesis, I feel, as we've looked at such tragedy from Genesis 4 as the spiraling sin unfolds to the point of God uh, destroying the world by a flood because of that great violence. And of course, the flood or the ark and Noah point to Christ and the ultimate salvation that we receive in Christ. Let me find 1 Corinthians 15 again. We're going to read we're going to read the start, verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to move to verses 12 to 26. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance that I also that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, verse 12 to 26. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is re no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God about God, that he raised Christ, he raised Christ, uh, whom, he, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, perished. And in Christ we have hope in this life only. And, and if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as, the, as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. And when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Father, we want to take a moment in reverence, in awe. We want to gain back that word awesome, 
Lord, for you and you only. The word our culture uses so often for things that are not weighty enough to be called awesome. Lord, the resurrection is an awesome miracle that you ordained from the beginning of time. You predestined, you foreknew that sin would reign in this world and that you would send your son in the likeness of human flesh to die for the sins of many. According to the scriptures, that he would be buried, that he would rise on the third day, according to the scriptures. Your word has been faithful from the beginning to its end. You ordain the end from the beginning. You know that you will have a people for yourself and they will be a people that are founded in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, as we turn to your word, we're reminded of the hope of the resurrection. We put aside all the things this world teaches us and all the other influences out there. We not try to bend and twist the scriptures to fit into today's teachings will we not be deceived by the endless myths but lord will we hold firmly whether we are labeled as fools let us be a fool for christ lord i pray that we would have a great conviction a great certainty of the resurrection hope that we have because christ himself defeated death I pray this in jesus name amen Well, it is Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that means for us. But truly, if we think about it, there is nothing really that different about this Sunday to any other Sunday. The reason the saints gather on a Sunday, the church gathers on a Sunday, is because Jesus rose on the third day. He rose on the first day. He rose three days after his death and he rose on the first day of the week, which in the Jewish tradition was Sunday. So the saints of the New Testament decided after some time of practicing the Sabbath, just as they did when the Jews, just as the Jews had done for many centuries, moved to gather and worship on the Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day when Christ defeated the grave, defeated sin, defeated uh, Satan and rose to life. So when we gather every Sunday, we gather to recognize that every Sunday is a day when Christ is alive, a reminder that he is alive today and every day. He's reigning in heaven. He is on the throne and he is waiting till all his enemies are under his feet. The last of all is death, as we read in this passage. So, yes, it's a great privilege in Australia to be able to have some public holidays, some time off work to celebrate Easter, where we get to remember that around this time period, Christ died on the cross and three days later he defeated death and rose to life. But let's also remember that we do this every Sunday and the Lord's Day should be a special day every week as we gather to worship and praise the Lord, as we preach the gospel, death and resurrection every single Sunday, as we sing about it and glory in it, and remind each other through the taking of the bread and the taking of the wine, as Jesus uh, taught us and told us to do. 
So yes, let's uh, take this day as a special day, but also remember that every Sunday we gather is as special as Easter Sunday, because every Sunday we gather is the day when the saints of Jesus come together to lift his name high and to remember what he has done through the conquering of death and sin and Satan. So the resurrection is not only our hope for the future, but it is our daily hope. We want to live in the daily power of the resurrection. I love what Paul says elsewhere in the book of Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul is uh, claiming his resurrection power of Christ for today's life, to live out in a newness of life. We don't have to continue in our daily sins, the sins that we once lived in before we knew Christ. But because of Christ's death, him dying in the flesh, in sinful flesh, taking our sins with him, and because of him defeating death and sin in the conquering of it by resurrecting, we now can live in that resurrection power, a new life. Every single day we live in the power of the resurrection hoping and waiting for the certain hope of the final resurrection when we'll be given not flesh bodies like these, but a new heavenly body which the scriptures leave as a mystery. Mankind, since the fall of time, since the fall from God, rather, have speculated about what happens after death. You could go to many different religions and even today we've got our own new theories about what happens but let's just think of a few some religions would say and teach about soul sleep in which the body dies and and disintegrate disintegrates i can't even read my own words i think i've spelled it wrong while the soul or the spirit rests the materialists believe in utter extinction extinction Total annihilation. I think that's a common one for our day today. Many atheists believe that we would go to the ground and that is it. We're annihilated. We have no more to say in the rest of history. Our legacy is all that is left. Another uh, option there is um, is the, the view of uh, reincarnation, where the soul dies and rather where the body dies and the soul or the spirit is recycled in another form sometimes a human becoming an animal or an animal becoming a human there's many different types of beliefs out there and the reason i draw us to different types of beliefs is because that's what's going on in this corinthians 15 passage the greeks at the time the hellenistic greeks were persuaded and convinced of a doctrine or a teaching called dualism which was attributed to Plato at the time dualism is the belief that the spirit is intrinsically good we have both spirit or soul and body and he would say or dualism would say that the spirit is intrinsically good and what's bad about humans is their flesh their physical body so the idea of a physical resurrection is a horrific offence to the person who believes in dualism. Now, of course, the Corinthian church has been convinced of Christ. They've died to their old self in Christ. They've been given new birth and they now believe in Jesus, but they've still got this influence of their current time and they're trying to grab hold of their culture and say, let's bring the culture into Christianity and let's add to it. 
let's say, yes, we believe in Jesus. We believe he died. We believe he rose. But let's add in dualism. And the way they do that is they say, well, Jesus is not fully man and fully God. Jesus, in fact, was only spirit and put on a sort of uh, mystical body that was not the same flesh that we had so that when he died, it was just a image of death. And when he rose, he did not rise in a spiritual, in a physical body, but rather a spiritual body. We see this clearly in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching to the Greek philosophers and that he, and it says, now they, the Athenian philosophers, heard of the resurrection of the dead and some began to sneer. We see this doctrine here play out in their response. They're offended by the idea that God is going to resurrect for the higher being of their higher being, their higher beings, is going to resurrect us in a physical body. Because to them, the spirit is good and the body is evil, intrinsically evil. The problem with the world, according to the dualists, is that the body is evil. Now, we have this same problem today. We look at our culture. We're convinced by things that are going on in the world and we start to add things to Christianity. We start to bring things in and we say, okay, look, if we, we can believe in God and I'm going to believe also in the evolution of man. And we start to add things to the Christian faith. Well, what Paul turns us to, if we remember back to that passage in 1, 6, uh, 15, 1 to 6, is the scriptures. He doesn't turn to any Greek philosopher. He doesn't turn to Plato's writings to disprove them. He doesn't turn anywhere but the scriptures. And he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. He could not care about what other writers are saying. He is saying, where has your faith come from? What are you dependent upon? You've always been dependent upon the word of God. So let's test the word of God, believe the word of God, and come back to what the word of God says. And the same is true for us today, whether dualism was the belief or whether someone comes and says Christ is not fully God and fully man or the resurrection is false, we come back to the scriptures and defend it by the scriptures, consistently turning to what the word says as a whole. So let's do that with the resurrection from what Paul has said. So the first thing that Paul states back in verses 5 and 6 is that if you don't believe in the resurrection, then here's a few ways you can in the most simplest form. He goes on to expand and to defend the position of the resurrection a bit more, but he's saying let's just get down to the, the most basic way of believing in the resurrection. And he says, here it is. The resurrected Christ appeared to Peter, the 12, and 500 others. This is verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6, he appeared to Peter. It says Cephas in some translations, but Peter, the 12, and then to 500 brothers at one time. And then he says, most of all whom are still alive, yet some have fallen asleep. So he's here making a very clear statement. If you don't believe in the resurrected bodily, uh, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then go and ask Peter 
who's probably alive or is alive at this time, go and ask the 11. If they don't convince you, go and ask the other 500 witnesses. And then he states this phrase, some have fallen asleep. He's even using in his argument a phrase that says death is not permanent for those who believe in Christ. He's saying death for the Christian is as if you've gone to sleep, not a permanent state of hopelessness. So his first and simple argument is we have eyewitnesses of people who were with Jesus, who ate with him, physically ate with him, who touched his side. John 20 tells us that they touched his wounds. Thomas, the man who doubts, put his finger in his side. You can't do that if this was a spiritual thing. But rather, Jesus had a physical body bottle bodily resurrection. So the simplest point that Paul wants to make to those who object to the resurrection is go and speak to the eyewitnesses. Go and hear from those who have touched him, who have seen him, who have ate with him. And then we move on to 12 to 26. When he continues to make his argument, for why the resurrection is there as a fact, and then he preaches the gospel at the end. In verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So what is he pretty much saying to these people? Leave Christianity behind if you don't believe in the resurrection. Your faith is in vain. It's futile if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. So what these people were actually teaching at the time, we see here in verse 12, was that they believed that Christ resurrected in a spiritual form, as I've said, but they didn't believe anyone else was going to. Every human was going to die. Christians were going to die. They were so influenced by the culture of the time, so influenced by this teaching of dualism that they believe that death was the end of all things and he is saying that if you believe in no resurrection he is pretty much saying you cannot believe in this half-half belief either either christ raised from the dead physically raised from the dead or he didn't pick one choose what one you sit under and he gives a number of reasons he gives Seven reasons why, and but the first few come in rapid fire in this first uh, in these couple of verses. The first three are Christ would not have been risen if there is no resurrection, Christ has not been risen. The second one is the preaching of the gospel is absolutely meaningless. So, why are we doing it? Pretty much, why, why are you preaching the gospel if you don't believe in the resurrection? And three. Faith in Christ is worthless. Rapid fire in verses 12 to 13, he completely says that if there is no resurrection, the Christian faith is useless. Useless. Christ would be Christ wouldn't be risen. The preaching of the gospel is meaningless, and faith in Christ is worthless. We see this so clearly throughout the whole of scriptures that this is what our faith hinges upon. We've been looking at Genesis for the last few months, uh, maybe six months, I don't know where we're up to, and we see the great problem of mankind is sin, that we have been 
uh, thrown out of the presence of God and separated from the presence of God, and we have no way back. And the continue, continuing picture of Scripture is that man continues to fall away. The whole of the Old Testament is about this. No matter how many miraculous signs God does, Israel turns from God. They continue in their sin. And then we finally get to the prophets, and the prophets explicitly tell of a new covenant that is going to come, a new promise that is going to come. And this promise is that God, this great picture in Ezekiel and Isaiah, God is the active worker in this covenant. He says, I will give you a new spirit. I will put my word in your heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll take out the heart of stone. What we see throughout the prophets is there's very little work. Actually, there's no work done on our part. But all the work is done through God's hands. As we look at the prophets, they are pointing to the day when Christ will come and he is the one who will die in our place. He will be buried. He will raise to life. And in his resurrection, we spiritually raise too. For those who believe in Jesus, everything Jesus has done, we have done as well. Isn't that incredible? uh, Galatians tells us we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So everything that Jesus did, he did on behalf of every saint who will believe in him. And when we put our faith in him, when we believe and repent and trust in his work, we have done it as well. Like that's how serious the connection is. We have actually died spiritually and raised to life we are now as paul says seated in the heavenly places we're not going to be we are now as good as being seated in the heavenly places the scriptures hold this incredibly beautiful tension of those who are uh, of, of the picture of the gospel of saying we have been saved and we are being saved we saw this at the start of 1 corinthians 15 We have been saved and we are being saved. Read through all the letters of the scripture and you'll see this phrasing. And what it's meaning is our salvation is certain in Christ Jesus, that we will enter into his heavenly presence, that we will see him face to face, but we are being saved in that we are on the progression of becoming more like Jesus throughout the rest of our life until that day we see him face to face. So the the rapid-fire argument of Paul to this church, remember Paul's writing to not pagans, to a church, to people who claim to believe in Jesus, and he is saying if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you are going to bring in this dualism position, you therefore don't believe Christ is risen, the preaching of the gospel is absolutely meaningless to you, and your faith in Christ is worthless. It has no meaning. And he continues on in 15 to 19 with four other arguments which build on this weight of it being worthless. And it says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. So if the resurrection, Paul's saying here in verse 15, if the resurrection is not real, we are making God out to be a liar. We are misrepresenting him misrepresenting him because we testify about God that he raised Christ Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's repeating himself from what he said before. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this, if, in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most, of all people, most to be pitied. That Paul continues the defence and the argument of why the resurrection has to be true, and if not, the weight of which the, the weight of which it is um, the weight in which it is it is not completely undermines the Christian faith. And he builds on it with four extra points: all witnesses to and all preachers of the resurrection are liars and are blaspheming God. They're misrepresenting God. This is an incredible weighty charge that he's saying, if you guys are true, church, if you are saying the resurrection is not real, you're bringing the charge before me, Paul the Apostle, to say that I am misrepresenting God because I teach that God raised Christ from the dead. It's a pretty pointed letter to the church at this point. We just touched on a few Old Testament passages before, but let's continue to explore the scriptures because Paul states this is according to the scriptures. We've got this incredible picture of Ezekiel 37, the dry bones. Ezekiel is a prophet and he's seeing a vision of the valley of dry bones and they are they are described as being uh, there for, for ages to the point where there is no flesh left on them, just bones all there, all disjointed. No one's making a physical uh, image of a person. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds, only you know God. And it says that God breathes and the four winds blow through and there's a rattling of the bones and the bones come together and skin and tendons go onto these bones and flesh is put on them. What is Ezekiel 37 about? resurrection physical resurrection of the body that we are like dry bones dead in our trespasses and sins away from god and only when god breathes on us through the resurrection of christ the power of christ's resurrection will we be able to draw near to him if we say there is no resurrection we make paul and ezekiel and ultimately god out to be a liar Job also testifies to this in Job 19, 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job's testifying to a physical resurrection that his flesh will see God, that he'll be given new flesh and see God. Paul's argument continues in verse 17. All men would still be in their sins. If there is no resurrection, then Christ's death was insufficient. In order for Christ to accomplish salvation for us, he had to defeat death. It is the only means by which we would have been able to be saved and enter into the Holy of Holies. If Christ does not raise from the grave, we are still condemned and still should face the wrath of God, the death, that we deserve. 
It says elsewhere in John that we are slaves to sin. Often said, if you don't believe that you're a slave, it's a pretty simple test to stop sinning for today. And I mean stop sinning completely right down to the thinking level. Not just your actions, but right down to the thinking level. If you can stop even thinking sinful thoughts, then you aren't a slave to sin, but you are because you can't. And we need someone who is not a slave to sin to pay the redemption price. And only Jesus could. So Jesus' death was sufficient, and we know that, because the grave could not hold him down. The sixth point in verse 18 is that all former believers who have uh, all former believers would have eternally perished. In verse 18, it tells us that all who have fallen asleep, once again, Paul using a phrase that says death is not permanent, but for the Christian, it is as if we go to sleep and wake up in heavenly splendor. He's saying here that if that is true, everyone who has died is dead. And that is it. There is no hope. Later in verse 32, he quotes from many Old Testament passages in Ezekiel, I mean, yeah, uh, Isaiah and Ecclesiastes, which says, well, if there is no resurrection, let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The attitude of a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection should be the most selfish person and have no reason for any moral standing whatsoever. What does it matter? What does life matter if we are just going to go to the grave and it ends? Live for yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That is Paul's understanding of what it would mean to live outside of the resurrected hope of Christ. And finally, in verse seven, uh, in verse 19.7, he says, Christians should be the most pitied people on earth. Why? Because in that day, Many Christians were giving their life for Jesus, knowing they had the hope of the resurrection. Many Christians, including Paul, were beaten, imprisoned, went hungry, were homeless. For the sake of what? For the sake of Christ and the power of the resurrection in which they hoped for. That is not true. And there is no resurrection. You are a fool to go to the grave and not believe that there is a hope after it. So Paul is leaving the Corinthian church with the weighty charge that if the resurrection is not true, true, we should be pitied for even believing in Christ. He doesn't stop there because in verse 20 he picks it up and he preaches the gospel and he says, but in fact, in fact, this is an absolute guarantee. He doesn't sort of believe this. He absolutely 100% believes this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul states from verse 19, his argument saying we should be most of all pitied. And he says, but we don't need to be pitied because we do believe in the resurrection. And the resurrection is a fact, an absolute fact. Do you know a secular historian that denies the existence of Christ is pretty much committing uh, intellectual suicide. A secular historian who denies the existence of Christ is committing intellectual suicide. It is a fact that Christ walks the earth. It is a fact that he claimed to be Lord. And we would say from the scriptures, it is a fact that he rose from the dead. He says here that he is, he goes on now to preach the gospel and he preaches the gospel by 
saying that Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits come before the harvest. They would go out and pick for themselves the and taste what the crop was going to be like. And we here see the resurrection as being pictured as Christ being the first fruit of the harvest. The harvest yet has not come. We are still waiting for the harvest. But Christ is the foretaste of the harvest. We get an experience of what this great grand harvest is going to be like in the resurrection of Christ. And that's what we are experiencing today. A foretaste of resurrection power as we see it overcome sin in our life and purge the evil from within us as we trust in the new life of Christ, the life he has given, as we trust in his work and not our own, as we trust in his righteousness and not our own, as we trust in his holiness and not our own, we are experiencing a foretaste of a resurrected life. I'm reminded in verse 10, uh, Philippians 3, I want to remind us of it again, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the death. dead. Beautiful phrase of Paul the Apostle, desiring to know Christ all the more, and today in his life as a physical human walking this earth in his day, saying, I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to overcome my flesh. I want to live in the victory of Christ. And then with the future hope that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on to preach the gospel through giving us that teaching of the first Adam who brought sin and the second Adam, Christ Jesus, who brought victory over sin, that through one man all have died, and through the other man, the greater man, Jesus Christ, all can live, all who put their trust in him. In verse 23 to 26, he pushes us to think of the future hope, the future hope in which Christ has ultimate victory over death. Let me read it. But each in his own order, and he gives us the order, Christ is the first fruit. Then, in, then at his coming, his second coming, those who belong to Christ will come to life again in a physical, heavenly body that will see God face to face. And then in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. But he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul reminds the church, that we ought not to be discouraged, that we should not be deflated by the Greek philosophers, by the modern psychologists, by the latest scientific evidence against the scriptures, because we have a certain unchanging hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has an order, and the order is being seen throughout the whole of the scriptures that Christ died, that he is the first fruit of the resurrection, that following that we will live in his power in this life, and we ourselves will conquer the grave in the power of Christ and live in heavenly resurrected bodies. And in that time, after the dead are raised, as we are united with Christ, he will destroy every earthly rule and authority and power, every spiritual rule and authority and power, and he will put them under his feet, as Psalm 110 tells us and Paul quotes right here. And the great hope 
is that finally death, the ultimate enemy of all human beings, the one none of us can defeat, all of us will face, will be destroyed. His last enemy, our last enemy, will be destroyed completely. And in Revelation 21, it says, and death will be no more. That is the victory we have in the resurrection. Would we be people like Paul, who says it doesn't matter what the psychologists, the philosophers, the scientists say, my evidence comes from the scripture and the scripture alone. I trust in the death and the resurrection of Christ. I live in the power of his resurrection today to overcome sin, to taste in the power of a new life today, knowing that I will have a complete new life with him in heaven. Let me pray and then we'll take communion. Father God, I give you great praise for your word. I give you praise that it is the truth, the absolute truth. There is no greatness to it. Lord, I give you great praise that it is according to the scriptures that you sent Christ to die and be buried and raised to life. I give you great praise that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is documented for us to know and believe in and trust in. Not only is it documented in word, but it's documented in your spirit that you have given to us. That we today, Lord, experience the power of your resurrection as you have overcome sin in our lives. As we continue to put away envy and rivalry and lust and bitterness and lying. We continue to put away immorality and idolatry. And we can do this because we live in the power of your resurrection, the newness of life, which foreshadows the new life when we are granted a heavenly body and see you face to face. Give you praise, Lord Jesus. Amen.